Chapter 17 of Babbitt 1. There are but three or four old houses in Floral Heights, and in Floral Heights an old house is one which was built before 1880. The largest of these is the residence of William Washington Ethorne, president of the First State Bank. The Ethorne Mansion preserves the memory of the nice parts of Zenith, as they appeared from 1860 to 1900. It is a red brick immensity with gray sandstone lintels, and a roof of slate in courses of red, green, and dyspeptic yellow. There are two anemic towers, one roofed with copper, the other crowned with cast-iron ferns. The porch is like an open tomb. It is supported by squat granite pillars, above which hang frozen cascades of brick. At one side of the house is a huge stained-glass window in the shape of a keyhole. But the house has an effect not at all humorous. It embodies the heavy dignity of those Victorian financiers who ruled the generation between the pioneers and the brisk sales engineers, and created a somber oligarchy by gaining control of banks, mills, land, railroads, mines. Out of the dozen contradictory zeniths, which together make up the true and complete zenith, none is so powerful and enduring, yet none so unfamiliar to the citizens as the small, still dry, polite, cruel zenith of the William Easthorns. And for that tiny hierarchy, the other zeniths unwittingly labor and insignificantly die. Most of the castles of the testy Victorian terrarchs are gone now, or decayed into boarding-houses, but the Ethorn mansion remains, virtuous and aloof, reminiscent of London, Black Bay, Rittenhouse Square. Its marble steps are scrubbed daily, the brass plate is reverently polished, and the lace curtains are as prim and as superior as William Washington Ethorn himself. With a certain awe, Babbitt and Chum Frink called on Ethorne for a meeting of the Sunday School Advisory Committee. With uneasy stillness, they followed a uniform maid through the catacombs of reception rooms to the library. It was as unmistakably the library of a solid old banker as Ethorne's side whiskers were the side whiskers of a solid old banker. The books were, most of them, standard sets with the correct and traditional touch of dim blue, dim gold, and glossy calfskin. The fire was exactly correct and traditional, a small, quiet, steady fire, reflected by polished fire irons. The oak desk was dark and old and altogether perfect. The chairs were gently supercilious. Ethorne's inquiries as to the health of Mrs. Babbitt, Miss Babbitt, and the other children were softly parental, but Babbitt had nothing with which to answer him. It was indecent to think of using the house tricks, old socks, which gratified Virgil Gunch and Frank and Howard Littlefield, men who till now had seemed successful and urbane. Babbitt and Frank sat politely, and politely did Ethorne observe, opening his thin lips just wide enough to dismiss the words. Gentlemen? Before we begin our conference, you may have felt the cold in coming in here, so good of you to save an old man the journey. Shall we perhaps have a whiskey toddy? So well trained was Babbitt in all the conversation that 
befits a good fellow, that he almost disgraced himself with, uh, rather than make trouble and always providing there ain't any enforcement officers hiding in the wastebasket. The words died choking in his throat. He bowed in flustered obedience. So did Chum Frink. Eathorne rang for the maid. The modern and luxurious Babbitt had never seen any one ring for a servant in a private house, except during meals. Himself in hotels had rung for bellboys, but in the house you didn't hurt Matilda's feelings. You went out in the hall and shouted for her, nor had he, since Prohibition, known anyone to be casual about drinking. It was extraordinary merely to sip his toddy and not cry, Oh, mamma, this hits me right where I live. And always with the ecstasy of youth meeting greatness, he marveled. A little fuzzy face there, why, he could make me or break me if he told my banker to call my loans. Gosh, that quarter-size squirt, and looking like he hadn't got a single bit of hustle in him, I wonder. Do we boosters throw too many fits about pep? From this thought he shuddered away and listened devoutly to Eathorne's idea on the advancement of the Sunday school, which were very clear and very bad. Definitely, Babbitt outlined his own suggestions. I think if you analyze the needs of the school, in fact, going right at it is as if it were a merchandising problem. The course of the one basic and fundamental need is growth. I presume we're all agreed we won't be satisfied till we build up the biggest darn Sunday school in the whole state. So the Chatham Road Presbyterian won't have to take anything off anybody. Now about jazzing up the campaign for prospects. They've already used contesting teams and given prizes to the kids that bring in the most members. And they made a mistake there. The prizes were a lot of folder rolls and doodads like poetry books and illustrated testaments instead of something a real live kid would want to work for, like real cash or a speedometer for his motorcycle. Of course, I suppose it's all fine and dandy to illustrate the lessons with those decorated bookmarks and blackboard drawings and so on, but when it comes down to the real he-hustling, getting out and drumming up customers, or members, I mean, why, you got to make it worth a fellow's while. Now I want to propose two stunts. First, divide the Sunday school into four armies, depending on age. Everybody gets a military rank in his own army according to how many members he brings in. And the duffers that lie down on us don't bring in any. They remains privates. The pastor and superintendent rank as generals, and everybody has got to give salutes and all the rest of that junk, just like a regular army, to make them feel it's worthwhile to get rank. Then, second, of course, the school has its advertising committee, but, Lord, nobody ever really works good. Nobody works well just for the love of it. The thing to do is be practical and up-to-date, and hire a real paid press agent for the Sunday school, some newspaper fellow who can give part of his time. Sure, you bet, said Chum Frank. Think of the nice juicy bits he could get in, Babbitt crowed. Not only the big, salient, vital facts, but how fast the Sunday school and the collection is growing. 
but a lot of humorous gossip and kidding how about some blowhard fell down on his pledge to get new members or the good time the sacred trinity girls had at their winehurst party and on the side if he had time the press agent might even boost the lessons themselves do a little advertising for all the sunday schools in town in fact no use being hoggish towards the rest of em providing we can keep the bulge on em in membership for instance he might get the papers to course i haven't got a literary training like frank here and i'm just guessing how the pieces ought to be written but take for instance suppose the week's lesson is about jacob well the press agent might get in something that would have a fine moral and yet with a trick headline that'd get folks to read it say like jake fools the old man makes get away with girl and bankroll so i mean that'd get the your interest now of course mr eathorne you're conservative and maybe you feel these stunts would be undignified but honestly i believe they'd bring home the bacon eathorne folded his hands on his comfortable little belly and purred like an aged pussy i say that i have been very much pleased by your analysis of the situation mr babbitt as you surmise it's necessary in my position to be conservative and perhaps endeavor to maintain a certain standard of dignity yet i think you'll find me somewhat progressive in our bank for example i hope i may say that we have as modern a method of publicity and advertising as any in the city yes i fancy you'll find our soldiers quite cognizant of the shifting spiritual values of the age yes oh yes and so in fact it pleases me to be able to say that though personally i might prefer the sterner presbyterian of an earlier era babbitt finally gathered that eathorne was willing chum frank suggested as part-time press agent one kenneth escott reporter for the advocate times they parted on a high plane of amity and christian helpfulness babbitt did not drive home but toward the center of the city he wished to be by himself and exult over the beauty of intimacy with william washington eathorne two a snow-blanched evening of ringing pavements and eager lights great golden lights of trolley cars sliding along the packed snow of the roadway demure lights of little houses the bleaching glare of a distant foundry wiping out the sharp-edged stars lights of neighborhood drugstores where friends gossiped well pleased after the day's work the green light of a police station and greener radiance on the snow the drama of a patrol wagon gong beating like a terrified heart headlights scorching the crystal sparkling street driver not a chauffeur but a policeman proud in uniform another policeman perilously dangling on the step at the back in a glimpse of the prisoner a murderer a burglar a coiner cleverly trapped an enormous gray stone church with a rigid spire dim light in the parlors and cheerful throng of choir practice the quivering green mercury vapor light of a photo engraver's loft then the storming lights of downtown parked cars with ruby taillights, white-arched entrances to movie theaters like frosty mouths of winter caves, electric signs, serpents, and little dancing men of fire, pink shaded globes, and scarlet jazz music in a cheap upstairs dance hall. Lights of Chinese restaurants, 
lanterns painted with cherry blossoms and with pagodas, hung against lattices of lustrous gold and black, small dirty lamps and small stinking lunchrooms, the smart shopping district, with rich and quiet light on crystal pendants and furs and suave surfaces of polished wood in velvet-hung reticent windows. High above the street, an unexpected square hanging in the darkness, the window of an office where someone was working late, for a reason unknown and stimulating, a man meshed in bankruptcy, an ambitious boy, an oil man suddenly become rich. The air was shrewd, the snow was deep in uncleared alleys, and beyond the city Babbitt knew were hillsides of snowdrift among wintry oaks and the curving ice-encrusted river. He loved his city with passionate wonder. He lost the accumulated weariness of business, worry, and expansive oratory. He felt young and potential. He was ambitious. It was not enough to be a Virgil Gunch, an Orville Jones, no. They're bully fellows, simply lovely, but they haven't got any finesse. No, he was going to be an Ethorn, delicately rigorous, coldly powerful. That's the stuff, the wallop in the velvet mitt. Not let anybody get fresh with you. Been getting careless about my diction, slang, colloquial, cut it out. I was first-rate at rhetoric in college. Thames on, anyway, not bad. Had too much of this hoopadoodle and good fellow stuff. Why couldn't I organize a bank of my own some day, and Ted succeed me? He drove happily home, and to Mrs. Babbitt was a William Washington Eathorn. But she did not notice it. 3. Young Kenneth Escott, reporter on the Advocate Times, was appointed press agent of the Chatham Road Presbyterian Sunday School. He gave six hours a week to it. At least he was paid for giving six hours a week. He had friends on the press and gazette, and he was not officially known as a press agent. He procured a trickle of insinuating items about neighborliness and the Bible, about class suppers, jolly but educational, and the value of their prayer life in attaining financial success. The Sunday School adopted Babbitt's system of military ranks. Quickened by this spiritual refreshment, it had a boom. It did not become the largest school in Zenith. The Central Methodist Church kept ahead of it by methods which Dr. Drew scored as unfair, undignified, un-American, ungentlemanly, and unchristian. But it climbed from fourth place to second, and there was rejoicing in heaven, or at least in that portion of heaven included in the parsonage of Dr. Drew, while Babbitt had much praise and good repute. He had received the rank of colonel on the general staff of the school, he was plumply pleased by salutes on the street from unknown small boys. His ears were tickled to ruddy ecstasy by hearing himself called Colonel, and if he did not attend Sunday school merely to be thus exalted, certainly thought about it all the way there. He was particularly pleasant to the press agent, Kenneth Escott. He took him to lunch at the athletic club and had him to the house for dinner. Like many of the cocksure young men who forge about cities in apparent contentment, and who expressed their cynicism in supercilious slang, Escott was shy and lonely. His shrewd, starveling face broadened with joy at dinner, and he blurted, "'Gee, Willigan, Miss Babbitt, if you knew how good it is to have home eats again!' 
Escott and Verona liked each other. All evening they talked about ideas. They discovered that they were radicals. True, they were sensible about it. They agreed that all communists were criminals, that this verse libre was Tommy rot, and that while there ought to be universal disarmament, of course Great Britain and the United States must, on behalf of oppressed small nations, keep a navy equal in the tonnage of all the rest of the world. But they were so revolutionary that they predicted, to Babbitt's irritation, that there would some day be a third party, which would give trouble to the Republicans and Democrats. Escott shook hands with Babbitt three times at parting. Babbitt maintained his extreme fondness for Earthorne. Within a week, three newspapers presented accounts of Babbitt's sterling labors for religion, and all of them tactfully mentioned William Washington Earthorne as his collaborator. Nothing had brought Babbitt quite so much credit at the Elks, the Athletic Club, and the Boosters. His friends had always congratulated him on his oratory, but in their praise was doubt, for even in speeches advertising the city there was something highbrow and degenerate, like writing poetry. But now Orville Jones shouted across the athletic dining-room, "'Here's the new director of the First State Bank!' Grover Butterbaugh, the eminent wholesaler of plumber supplies, chuckled. "'Wonder you mix with common folks after holding Athorn's hand?' And Emil Wengret, the jeweler, was at last willing to discuss buying a house in Dorchester. 4. When the Sunday school campaign was finished, Babbitt suggested to Kenneth Escott, "'Say, how about doing a little boosting for Doc Drew personally?' Escott grinned. You trust the doc to do a little boosting for himself, Mr. Babbitt? There's hardly a week goes by without his ringing up the paper to say if we'll chase a reporter up to his study, he'll let us in on the story about the swell sermon he's going to preach on the wickedness of short skirts, or the authorship of the Pentarache. Don't you worry about him. There's just one better publicity grabber in town, and that's this Dora Gibson Tucker that runs the Child Welfare and the Americanization League. And the only reason she's got Drew beaten is because she has got some brains. Well, now, Kenneth, I don't think you ought to talk that way about the doctor. Preacher has to watch his interest, hadn't he? You remember that in the Bible, about, about being diligent in the Lord's business or something. All right, I'll get something in it for you if you want me to, Mr. Babbitt but I'll have to wait till the managing editor is out of town, and then blackjack the city editor. Thus it came to pass that in the Sunday Advocate Times, under a picture of Dr. Drew at his earnestness, with eyes alert, jaws granite, and rustic lock flamboyant appeared in an inscription, a wood-pulp tablet, conferring twenty-four hours in mortality. The Reverend Dr. John Jennison Drew, M.A., pastor of the beautiful Catham Road Presbyterian Church, in lovely floral heights is a wizard soul winner he holds the local record for conversions during his shepherdhood an average of almost a hundred sin-weary persons per year have declared the resolve to lead a new life and have found a harbor of refuge and peace everything zips at the catham road church the subsidiary organizations are keyed to the top notch of efficiency dr grew is especially keen on good congregational singing Bright, cheerful hymns are used at every meeting, and the special sing-services attract lovers of music and professionals from all parts of the city. On the popular lecture platform, as well as in the pulpit, 
Dr. Drew is a renowned word painter, and during the course of the year he receives literally scores of invitations to speak at varied functions, both here and elsewhere. 5. Babbitt let Dr. Drew know that he was responsible for this tribute. Dr. Drew called him brother and shook his hand a great many times. During the meetings of the advisory committee, Babbitt had hinted that he would be charmed to invite Ethorne to dinner, but Ethorne had murmured, "'So nice of you, old man, now. Almost never go out.' "'Surely Ethorne would not refuse his own pastor,' Babbitt said boyishly to Drew. "'Say, doctor, now we've put this thing over, strikes me it's up to the dominie to blow the three of us for a dinner.' "'Bully, you bet. Delighted,' cried Dr. Drew in his manifest way someone had once told him that he talked like the late president roosevelt and uh say doctor be sure to get mr eathorne to come insist on it it's uh i think he sticks around home too much for his own health eathorne came it was a friendly dinner babbitt spoke gracefully of the stabilizing and educational value of bankers to the community they were he said the pastors of the fold of commerce. For the first time, Ethorne departed from the topic of Sunday schools and asked Babbitt about the progress of his business. Babbitt answered modestly, almost filially. A few months later, when he had a chance to take part in the Street Traction Company's terminal deal, Babbitt did not care to go to his own bank for a loan. It was rather a quiet sort of deal, and if it had come out, public might not have understood. He went to his friend Mr. Eathorne. He was welcomed and received the loan as a private venture, and they both profited in their pleasant new association. After that, Babbitt went to church regularly, except in spring Sunday mornings, which were obviously meant for motoring. He announced to Ted, I tell you, boy, there's no stronger bulwark of sound conservatism than the evangelical church, and no better place to make friends who'll help you gain your rightful place in the community than in your own church home. End of chapter 17